Luke chapter 12 this morning as we continue the message from last week on how to really live in the will of God. Luke chapter 12, and I want to begin in verse 13 and read a, a portion of the text that we'll be looking at today. One of the company said unto Jesus, Master, speak to my brother that he divide the inheritance with me. And he said unto him, Man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? And Jesus turns to those that are with him and says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall all those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We're going to look into the later verses as well this morning. But as Jesus responds to this request about make my brother give me my portion of the inheritance, and he turns to the crowd, and in that statement that he makes at the beginning here in verse number 15, what we hear Jesus saying or what we should hear Jesus saying, we should hear the Lord and judge of all the earth saying to us today, know your heart. What is the focus and emphasis of your life? Are you living to fulfill God's will or your will? And that is the message that he is giving us right now in these days we're spending together. Of course, the goal is that our will would become immersed into and ultimately integrated into the will of God. There's a great blockade to that for many people. And Jesus calls it out here in this, in this text and in the, in the story that he tells and in the instruction that follows in the verse 22 and, and beyond. This blockade is either the one who is rich in this world and yet is broke before God. That's the rich man of the parable. Or it is those who are not abundantly wealthy, but who are driven by anxiety over whether or not they will have enough. And that is the rest of the teaching from verse 22 through verse 34. I believe an honest assessment of our life would turn up that we are often a combination of these two. And I said last week, all of us compared to the majority of the world are wealthy people. You had no trouble this morning having something to wear. Some of you had a lot of trouble picking out what to wear. So we are wealthy compared to most people in the world. And yet this consumer-driven culture which we have grown up in has told us that our money is ours. We worked hard to earn it. We should enjoy it. And so we spend and we buy more and we accumulate. And like the man in the parable, we do not stop to think uh, whether or not it is God's will. We simply want it. It's our will and that's enough. Now here's where the combination comes in. Some of us, because we have not lived according to God's will and spent so much of what we have on our own will, we are broke, rich people. Think about that a minute. 
There are people today who will be happy to receive a meal. And we, who are overflowing with stuff and food and clothes and, and everything, and yet we're thinking about, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to buy that other thing I want? Maybe we should get a loan or another credit card. Maybe we need a second mortgage, a third mortgage. Something awfully strange about that, isn't there? Whereas we ought to have plenty, we have so little because we have it all sunk in ourselves. And so we fret and we worry. And we have to figure out ways to get more. And so we take second jobs and we work extra hours and we put in more and more time so we can get what we need to sustain life, the life that we have made for ourselves. But we are learning about God's will. That's where you want to live. That's where you want to be. We're learning about how to know God's will and how to live in God's will. And so what does all of this teach us about the will of God? Well, there are two key places in the text that give us two key truths to take away. Now, one of them we looked at last week, and that is this, that our lives do not belong to us. If we are to understand the will of God and live in the will of God, we have to start right there. My life does not belong to me, and your life does not belong to you. And that is what is found in verse 20 and 21 here. God said, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. What is the soul of a man? What is the soul of a woman? We should think of the soul, not confusing it with the mind or even the heart, but we should think of the soul as the entirety of our life. Your life will be required of God. Now, once the life you've built for yourself is required of God, Jesus says, then who shall all these things be which thou hast provided for thyself? Because I assure you, God doesn't want your barns. God's stuff won't fit in barns. Amen. <laughs> God doesn't need that. So then who gets all this stuff that you have built your life around? That's foolish living. The second truth, which we'll explore more today, is our life's purpose is to pursue God with all our heart. Look at verse 31. And we'll see those verses in the middle, but at the end of Jesus' teaching about how we should trust God, he says, But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So you can do what? I mean, if you're not afraid, if you're not worried, if you're not anxious about how you're going to make it, then you can live in verse 33 and verse 34. Sell that ye have, give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approacheth, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When you by faith put money in the red buckets at Christmas, or you by faith give $5 to a homeless person, or you by faith bring in $100 and drop it in the mission account. Hey, listen, friend, you've invested in eternity. You cannot lose that. But when you go get yourself another, another double mocha, coca, frappuccino that you don't need, you don't need it for a lot of reasons. One, because you haven't invested a thing in God all week. But you invest in yourself. You know what you've done? You better enjoy that double mocha cocoa frappo because that's, that's all you get out of that. Boy, if we could learn to evaluate our life by that standard, 
would change a lot, wouldn't it? Here's the truth behind these two great texts that Brother Corey has read in the last two Sunday mornings. Last week, Psalm 40, and, and this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, the psalmist said, David said, then said, I lo, I come. I come. That's purpose. To live with purpose, I come. It's not happening by accident. I'm not just tripping into things. I'm not just showing up because I ought to be here. I come with purpose in my life. In the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will. The desire of my heart is to serve God and to please God and to, and to do his will. That's what David was saying. And that's what Jesus said when he came. And oh my God, yea, thy law is written within my heart. Now that is where we are transformed. The law of God, the word of God written in our heart. My will swallowed up in your will, Lord. And so a life that has purpose to it. I'm not just bebopping around, but I actually headed somewhere and passing through the valley of Baca and on the journey with God and headed to a place that is eternal and not living for this temporary world. I delight to do the will of God. There's nothing that lifts my heart. There's nothing that encourages me. There's nothing that comforts me more than when I am in the will of God. Whether it's sitting in the backyard by my fire watching the sunset or preaching from this pulpit to be in the will of God is the delight of my soul. I delight. Did you delight to come to church this morning? Or was it your duty to come? Some delight to come and be around the people. Some delight to be seen and heard. Some delight just to get out of the house. That should not be our delight the will of God, the glory of God should be our delight. Listen, the most important pursuit of your life for every soul here this morning, whether saved or lost, is to find and know and live in the will of God. Well, now wait a minute, preacher. How can the lost be in the will of God? Every lost person in this world is in the will of God. Now, how can I say that? Well, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us what the Lord is not willing. He's not willing that any should perish. Well, what does that mean? That means He's willing that everyone would be saved. And in that sense, there's not a person on the planet not in the will of God. God wills that they be saved. This morning, there may be somebody here that doesn't know Jesus and you're lost in your soul, but God wills that you would be saved. And if your will will surrender to His will, <laughs> you can get saved. Amen? For the saints, for the children of God, listen, God's will is such a priority and should be such a focus of our lives that Jesus taught us to be praying for it to be done every single day. Matthew 6, 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray that prayer practically, Lord, thy will be done in my life today. Thy will be done in our gathering today. Thy will be done in my afternoon today as it is in heaven. The Hebrew writer in that text in Hebrews 10, verse 9 and 10 said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. God's will. That which Jesus came to do is that all of us would be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus forever. Now, if that is God's will, God's great intent and mission in this world, then this must become our will also. 
It must become our great purpose and our great mission in life that we would be made holy through the sacrifice of Jesus. That sounds like intentionality. It sounds like surrender. It sounds like not my will, but thine be done. And so we remember the first point is that our lives do not belong to us. We are each of us accountable to God. We do not own our lives. It is loaned to us by God. And you will, like the rich man, be called out of this temporary world to stand before God and answer for what you have done with your life. And to the Christians, you are really going to, get to, to, to need to get past this idea that Jesus did everything for you. And so you are free. I think most Christians think that when they stand before the throne, it'll sort of be like a, a little scolding from the Lord, and we'll sort of just hang our heads there for a few minutes in remorse until He gets done. And then we can move on and get on with being coddled and pampered for all of eternity. You have a real wake-up call coming if that is your impression of the judgment day. And for many of us, that is our impression of the judgment day. As evidenced by how we live our lives. Not for God and His glory, but for ourself. Jesus did everything in order for you to be delivered and saved from the penalty of sin. He made us free. But free, why? Free so that we could now live purposefully in the life of God, in the pursuit of God. And we have to wonder why we are not living that way. Why a practical agnosticism permeates the church. Meaning, we believe there is a God and Jesus, we believe He is real, but we just can't get too concerned about that right now. Later, Later we'll worry about that. Later when we are retired, we'll have more time. Later when the children have been raised, we'll have more opportunity to serve God and really think about eternity and things that matter like that. And there are people sitting here this morning who are retired and their children are long raised and gone and they will tell you it'll never work that way. We better determine this morning right now that we're going to get into the best spiritual shape of our lives. And it's going to take work. Jesus did it all so you could be saved, but He will not live your life for you. And your life is to be lived for the glory of God. And you don't want to stand before God one day having wasted that. There is a phrase in the Bible that really grabs my heart and sort of shakes me up a little. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Listen to these two verses and how it culminates in the end. For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight. You cannot hide from the Word of God. You can't cover yourself from the Word of God. By the way, Jesus is 
the Word of God, the Word made flesh which dwelt among us. And the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And you cannot be hid from His sight. Everything is made manifest to Him. All things are naked, here's the end, and opened unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That's another way of saying you're going to have to meet an appointment. That's another way of saying, well, I don't, I don't have to answer to you, preacher. Amen. Amen. Be glad because I'd mess it up. But you've got to answer to him. The one you haven't fooled not one millimoment of your life. You've got to answer to him. I've got to answer to him. I sat in my place of study this morning and thought about some things I've got to answer for. You say, but Jesus paid it all, preacher. Yeah, he did. And I've lived like he didn't. And I'm going to give an account. Say, I thought your sins were forgiven, washed away. They are. But I'm going to give an account of a life and every moment and every hour and every attitude and every action in which I live for myself and not for the glory of God. And in that sense, if I don't blow your theology out of the water, there's some sin I've got to give an answer for. Oh, it, it's paid for. I'm forgiven. And I still got to face it. And so do you. And we got to get serious about this thing. There will never be real revival in the church, ours, the church anywhere, until men and women come back to a fear of God. But we've been coddled and pampered and we've been served our rights so long in our culture that we have no real fear of God. And we've begun to live like we are God. I just finished reading in Revelation again. And I'm still recalling the scene of the judgment in Revelation 20. Verse number 12 says this, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. Now, thank God, I don't know a lot about all this, but thank God, when the books are open, I'm glad that other book's open too. Because if the only books that were open was the record of my journey, <laughs> I'd be in trouble. Thank God when the book is looked at over here and says, man, you messed it up. What were you thinking? I'm glad this book over here has my name in it. <laughs> See, that's how I get covered, but I still got to give an account. You see, it goes on to say, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. I was sharing that thought with AP in the office back there this morning. Some thoughts about this text. He said, boy, that sure does open up and give some, some real uh, meat behind James saying that faith without works is dead. You think God cares about our works? He cares a lot about our works. You think that God doesn't care whether or not you live a life that honors the sacrifice of His Son and brings glory to Him? He cares very much about that. How serious do you think God is about His own glory? He was serious enough to put His Son on the cross. He's serious enough to make a hell to send the devil to. And He's serious enough that if you refuse Him and you die without Him, that you too will go to that place. God's serious about His glory. Serious about it. Now I know that many, many might think right now, but, but that's not the believer there, preacher. We don't have to give an account there. Jesus paid it all. 
We ought to really try to listen to the rest of that song. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. We got to get serious about the second part of that line, don't we? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 and 11, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in the body. Somebody said, well, I won't be at that great white throne. What color is Jesus' throne? What's the judgment seat color? It might be great white too, right? Jesus, how many thrones does Jesus have? Well, he's, you know, he's got his main you know, throne and his summer throne, one at the beach, one at the... No, you're going to stand before his throne. And the dead, small and great, the rich, the poor, the outcast, the, the celebrated, the lost, the saved. We will stand before his throne and we give an account of what we have done in the body, whether it be good or bad. And Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. I'm looking for the terror of the Lord in the, the culture and time that we're living in today. When some people, perhaps sitting in this room right now, sat in front of a television last night and watched debauchery and immorality and vileness and wickedness and people doing wicked things and you opened your heart to that and yet you say, I fear God. You don't fear God. You don't fear God. You weren't fearing God then. When we live unto ourselves, we're not fearing God. And for that we will give account. So... Knowing that, I persuade men. Your life is not your own. We, all of us, all that we have, all that we are, all that we hope for, ought to be for one purpose, to live for the glory of God. To live in the will of God is to live for the glory of God. Now, the second thing that we want to see this morning is that Jesus teaches us here that true riches, which are at the center of this teaching, right? Tell him to give me my inheritance. A man's life consisteth not of the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Oh, I've got so much. What will I do with it? I know I'll pad my, my, uh, my life up. I'll get my retirement fund. And, and Oh, we don't know if we got enough. What will we do? And see, the thing is Jesus is showing us that the will of God is to understand that true riches are found in a life lived in the will of God. To be rich toward God, verse 21. And then those verses, verse 31 through 34, that we seek the kingdom of God and that we treasure our heart in the kingdom of God and in eternity. What is it to be rich toward God? Another way of saying that would be that it is a foolish and wasted life to store up earthly wealth and not have a relationship with God that is rich. That would be another way to say that. That was this rich farmer. But also to be rich toward God is to live in such a way that we're not poor mouthing on our life situation. But rather we are learning to trust God for everything because we have given ourselves to the one thing that matters, His glory. This is the real essence and context of that passage Paul gives us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. 
Everywhere and in all things I am instructed to be both full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. It would do us good not to quote that verse out of its context, wouldn't it? Because that context really gives that verse all of its meaning. Rich toward God. The word rich should be understood beyond dollar signs and bank statements. It is a relationship with God that is abundant and fruitful and deep and prolific. It is to live in the will of God for the glory of God. It is to be loaded with God. It is to be dripping in God. It is to have copious, plentiful, lush life with God. That's what it is to be rich with God. It's to be, really be living Psalm 23 is to really be living John 10, 10. It's to really be living Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. That's what it is to be rich toward God. It is really a life that is exactly the opposite of what most people rich in this world's goods are living. Jesus described it in the following verses. Verse 22, verse 20 on down through there. Jesus describes it there that people with a you know, a whole lot in this world and not much for God. They live in worry and stress and become overworked and self-centered. That's the rich farmer. But in the verses that follow, we see the people who may not have a lot, but for whom the focus becomes, woe is us! How can we get more? And they live lives that are also overwhelmed with stress and anxiety and fear. Now, let's stop a moment and just all admit and confess within our hearts, we've all been in those groups. And because we're rich, broke people, we've been in both of those groups. We got a little money somewhere along the way, and we said, oh, what can I do with this to make my life better? You know what the answer to that question is? You should have got it invested in God right away. But that's not what we typically do. We invest it in ourselves. We go buy that bigger television. Woo, have you seen it? It's this big. I had to rebuild the wall in my house. Couldn't hold it up, but boy, once we got that thing up, it's like being there. Why would you want to be there? And then we've been on the other side. A lot, some of us. Man, how in the world are we going to get through this? We ain't got enough money to buy milk. Time out. And then we walk to our closets and our cabinets in our cupboards, in our garage. And we need to remind ourselves it's not God's fault. He said he would take care of us and give us just what we need. But because we've invested so much in ourselves, we're just rich, broke people. Broke, rich people. So, life with God offers us a life that is rich in God in these ways. Let me tell them to you. Straight out of the text, to be rich toward God is, first of all, to be rich in the experience of God. Some of you, that's already connected. You had an experience of God today? I don't have any stories about you. I have to tell a lot about me because I know me. But I tell you, Athena and I were driving in this morning, and we had an experience with God. I'm still enjoying it. And I wouldn't take anything for that kind of life. Nothing. 
Say, preacher, have you ever wanted to give your wife and children just everything they could possibly want? Yes! I've wanted to live where every part of my being is for God's will and glory, but I've come short of it so many times. And everything they could have ever needed and wanted would have been to have a husband and a father who was 100% given to the will of God. But I want to be that kind of man. It ain't over yet. I'm still here. <laughs> Life is more than stuff. Life is more than doing and achieving and producing and consuming. What is Jesus using here as teaching tools in, in this? Look, look with me in, in, in this, these verses. Verse 22. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, neither for your body what ye shall put on. The life is more than meat, the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you, with taking thought, can add to his stature one cubit? If ye then not be able to do that thing which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass which today is in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? What is Jesus using here as teaching tools? What is he drawing us to? He's drawing our attention to birds and flowers and the sky and the field. It's a very pastoral thing. It's very rural. It's very natural. He's pulling our attention away from the hurry and the hustle and the urban and the city and the, and the clamor. And he's leading us to green pastures and still waters where he restores our soul. And when our life is made up of all the hurry and the hustle, we have no quiet and we have no place to be restored and to hear his voice. And so he leads us to that Psalm 23 life defined by beauty and rest and quiet. I'm serious about this, and those of you who have gone know what I'm talking about, but I have never felt richer, freer, more alive than when we're out on a backpacking trip. And I learned a long time ago why that is. Because when you go out there, we only have what is required to live, and live well. We only have what is just natural and simple and raw and life-giving. To come back from that a lot of times, I mean, there's a lot of good to come back to. Uh, Athena and air condition and children and the church. But, I mean, but to come back from that to a lot of the other stuff that we have to come back to in this world, You compare that to the rush, the office, the... Think about this. The irony that comes with thinking that finding success in life requires constantly meeting deadlines. Life success is met at the deadlines. I, I don't know how we came to be in that predicament. But that is Western culture and has become much of the American Christian life. We've adopted that same mentality. Just learned this yesterday. The Chinese pictograph, you know how they have symbols for their words. The Chinese pictograph for the word busy is made up of two symbols. 
It's like a compound word in Chinese. The two symbols that make up the word busy in Chinese are the symbol for heart and killing. So the Chinese word for busy is heart killing. That kind of opens it up a little bit when somebody comes up and says, uh, how you doing today? Boy, I'm busy. And yet that's the response we get all the time. We've been even conditioned to think that everybody's busy because if you're not busy, you're not worth much. People say to me all the time, preacher, I know you're busy. I'm trying not to be. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been a man who's been very busy in my life. I mean, I've spent the first half of my Christian life being busy for God. And you know what I was finding? Chinese, the Chinese people got it right. But boy, since the Lord's been helping me turn that around, and it's a process, and finding my heart come alive in ways I never knew before. Let me remind you of the riches that Jesus offers. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 30, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have no time to go further this morning, but I trust the Lord has spoken to our hearts about what needed to be spoken over. Our life does not belong to us. And true riches in life are found in living in the will of God. To be rich toward God is to be rich in the experience of God. And so this morning as I close this, I would ask you to think about what is keeping you from being rich toward God. You may be this morning one who is so focused on filling up your barns and building bigger and better barns. You may be this morning one who is chasing the title, chasing the bottom line, chasing the career, chasing uh, the biggest salary, chasing the biggest recognition, and you're like the rich farmer. You are essentially living out or chasing the American dream. You may be in the other group right now who is saying, man, I just can't hardly seem to get my head above water. Woe is me. Well, you got a pretty pitiful God, don't you? Right? Now, I'm talking to me too, so just in case you are wondering. <laughs> no, 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 friends. If we're over here on this side and things aren't coming together all the time, but we just need to remember, Jesus said, look, turn it all over to me. Stop trying to make it work yourself. Come. Just bring every bit of it. Just gather up all that worry and anxiety and that fear and that uncertainty and just bring it up here and, and give it to me and let it go. Say, Lord, I am letting you have it. I'm believing you. I'm going to believe you because I'm going to act like this is true and I'm going to go on back and I'm going to live now rich towards you and I'm going to trust you and you're going to take care of it. And then, you know, you're going to be like me and three days from now you're going to be like, oh my goodness, what? where did this bill come from? That happened to us this week. I tell you what, that world's got so many tricks up their sleeve. I got a letter in the mail. I didn't even know I owed this money. You know why I didn't know I owed this money? I didn't go online and saw that I owed this money. 
I didn't know to go online and see that I owed this money. But I, I don't have a, I owe the money. I mean, when, just let it go. Lord, I owe this money. I mean, really, really, I, I guess you owe this money. And I'm sorry I got to, to this point and wasn't a good steward and overlooked this, but I need some help. So lay it down, and uh, we'll, we'll get to it as soon as you provide, and we're gone. We're going on. You know, the Lord's never, ever, ever let me down. Never has. And I've always kind of lived just kind of right there, you know, just, and, and it works. So this morning, what's keeping you from being rich toward God?